meet Gary, who's lived most everywhere, from NYC to Lincoln Square. But Roscoe's only seen the sights a boy can see from Ashland Heights. What, what a, a crazy, crazy pair. Still their co-hosts. Your lovable co-hosts and you'll find. Don't laugh alike or talk alike, though sometimes they can squawk alike. You can lose your mind when co-hosts are two of a kind. That, of course, <laughs> is in remembrance of the remarkable Patty Duke, who passed away this week at the age of 69. That's a parody of the theme song. Winner of an Oscar and uh, three Emmy Awards. Star of The Miracle Worker and Valley of the Dolls. Valley of the Dolls, one of your favorite movies. One of is my it, favorite movies, why, yes. Why is that one of your favorite movies? Tell me about the... what. What is the appeal of Valley of the Dolls? Because it's such a bad movie. Because it's... A terrible, terrible movie. Yes, it is. And it's inexplicably terrible. Patty Duke was a brilliantly talented actress. She wins an Academy Award in 1962. Five years later, she gives a terrible performance. Can you ever think of a great talent who, any parallel of a great talent giving a truly awful performance? Yeah, I, nothing comes to mind right off the top and, of my head. Yeah. But, but Patty Duke comes but, to mind. And, and it's, I mean, it might have been tied to her later problems, you know, her... Her bipolar her, issues. Her bipolar issues her and trouble with substance drugs, abuse. Things and, like that, absolutely. Um, but uh, we, we shall miss her. Uh, we're not going to detail uh, any sort of profile of her today, but uh, we thought we'd give that shout-out by doing <laughs> our, our own theme song. We have been busy bees since our last podcast. Did you know that this marks our 30th episode, Roscoe? Wow. Yeah, congratulations it's on moving, making moving it. Moving right along, yeah. On making it this far. And as an homage to the Magic I've pieced together some facts about what happened in the world 30 years ago. Randomly uh, associated facts from uh, 1986. Uh, some of them are quite notable. Others are just tidbits of interesting facts or uh, trivia. And we'll be uh, visiting these throughout the podcast. So from 1986, did you know that in 1986 we celebrated Martin Luther King Jr. Day for the first time? Doesn't it seem like we've been celebrating that for, for our entire lives? Well, I'm, I'm barely out of my 30s, so yes. <laughs> well, true. I, t I didn't mean to date you, Roscoe. Okay. And some people in the Reagan administration secretly sold arms to Iran, and the Iran-Contra affair was born. Also notable great. for what a, what a great, fantastic year. Gotta love that Ronald Reagan. Gotta love it. And it's crazy that now when people talk about Ronald Reagan, you would, you would think that God had been president of the United States. You would think. Yeah, and there's so much taint connected with his administration. And you were only like three years old. I was, yeah, I was three. I was in... <laughs> Looking forward to my first pair of jodhpurs. Hey, what should I discover um, on my journeys through popular culture and what's new in the world? Of course. Ecuador has designated an area of an ocean off their coast the size of Vermont and New Hampshire combined as a sanctuary for, what do you think? Oh, my a shark sanctuary? A shark sanctuary. Some 18,000 square miles of water around the Galapagos Islands will now be off limits to fishing vessels, and patrols will search for illegal 
shark fin hunters. You know, these shark fins are considered a prized delicacy right. in, in and, China, especially. And, and considered a cure for cancer. Uh, they're considered a cure for just about everything. Uh, so they're now patrolling just what just what I need a sanctuary for sharks. <laughs> yes. An elephant sanctuary wasn't enough. Yes. Now they have to keep the sharks safe. There needs to be a breeding ground for sharks so that they can let them loose wherever you might next appear near near an ocean. I'm told that there are about a hundred million sharks killed every year, so they must breed like rabbits. A hundred million sharks. That hundred million sharks throughout, throughout the world. How yeah. many sharks are there? Are they endangered? Some are endangered. Others are not. As far as I'm concerned, they, they're all on the danger list, <laughs> if not the endangered list. And then, this is crazy. I, I'm just surfing the internet one day, and you know you come across these quizzes that are like... What kind of food would you be if you were a food? Well, I come across this as a, what animal am I? And it was this quiz of about 12 questions. So I'm taking this quiz and I'm answering the questions. What animal do you think they came up with for me? A shark. A white tip reef shark. Oh my God, real? No. I swear to God. You're making me up. Out of the blue, it says, you are a white tip reef shark. You may seem scary, but you really are quite a nice person. You can get somewhat angry, but you would never hurt anyone unless you were defending yourself. Apparently, white tip reef sharks are docile. There's never been a reported attack on a human being. Uh, unlike a lot of sharks, they have these gill plates that they can flow water across their gills so they don't have to keep moving all the time. And in fact, during the daytime, they sort of sit in little rocky caves and, and Laying rest. in wait for you. Laying in wait for me. This was interesting, and I thought of you, because once upon a time on your Sourpuss Smithers, one of your pet peeves was people talking on their cell phones on the subway. I had an incident the other day. I, I won't even describe it to you, but it, it, it would have driven you crazy. Have you heard about uh, Dennis Nickel? the 63-year-old uh, certified public accountant here in Chicago. He's my hero. <laughs> who got sick of hearing loudmouths blabbing on their cell phones on a commuter train and was arrested for using a signal jammer to silence the calls. <laughs> Commuters started noticing their calls being dropped, and one traveler spotted him holding a device with multiple antennas sticking out of it. <laughs> <laughs> and police arrested and charged the financial analyst, who I've now learned is a, a certified public accountant, with unlawful interference with a public utility. In the news this week, however, I've heard that he is going to be put in a diversion program for counseling. They're not going to arrest him. They're not going to charge him with this misdemeanor. But he needs to go into counseling. What, what does he need to be counseled about? He's absolutely right. I stand by... <laughs> I stand by his right to jam other people's phone signals. Something has happened. One of the great things about riding the red line, the underground subway, is that when you when you were, you know, several stories underground, people weren't on their cell phones because there's what no signal down there. I think the city of Chicago has done a great done us a great favor by now wiring the red line for sound because now people talk on the cell phone. Uh, all, all through the oh, downtown. You get, you get perfect reception. I get and, five bars on the red yeah, line. Yeah, the yeah. yesterday I had two people, two women, one to my right and one directly behind me, talking on their cell phone. 
One, one woman speaking in a foreign language I couldn't quite make out, and another woman who looked like she had just gotten laid off paying one of the kitchen maids in Downton Abbey, <laughs> who was talking to people back home. Oh, bollocks. I can't, oh, don't be dense. Don't be thick, dear. Really? Yes. <laughs> On her and, phone? And I wanted to turn around and tell her to shut up, but it was kind of entertaining to listen to her, and at least I wasn't having a, to listen to a 23-year-old say, well, you know, I'm like, I don't want to go there, and he's like, well, I want to go there, and I'm like, well, you know, Okay, I'll go there, but but like I only want to have two margaritas. I'm like, okay, is that okay? Like, people will say almost anything on their cell phone in 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 public. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I was on a train the other day, and this person had one of those big cell phones, you know, that are about six inches long. They're they're almost like half the size of an iPad. Yes, <laughs> and they're they're holding it up to the side of their head. <laughs> This person was talking to a friend of hers, and they were talking about the most, what I would think were the most private subjects. How much you get paid, where you can go to the unemployment office, what are you going to do with the deadbeat boyfriend when he doesn't come home later today? And she wasn't just having a conversation. She was shouting a conversation. I have no idea why she felt she needed to shout it. I'm sorry, I've just given it away that it was a woman. What really got me? <laughs> Duh. <laughs> <laughs> what really got me was that she was eating a double sausage, egg, and cheese sandwich from Dunkin' Donuts. And it was one of those five inch sandwiches. And it smelled up the entire car. And it took her it took her probably forty-five minutes to eat that sandwich. How did while you, she was screaming on the on the train. How did you maintain your composure? Uh, well, I put headphones in eventually, oh. um, though that didn't help all that much. I have asked people, I've said, excuse me, where are you getting off? Because if they're staying on to 95th Street, which is the farthest last stop for those of you not from Chicago, the longest possible way you can go. If they say, I'm getting off at Thorndale, which is a few stops farther along, then at least I know how long I have to tolerate this. Have you ever heard of what is considered to be the greatest April Fool's hoax ever perpetrated uh, on the world? You may not have. I I don't know. This is from 1957. In a news segment, the BBC reported Swiss farmers were celebrating an unusually plentiful spaghetti crop. (laughs) (laughs) The story included stage footage of workers plucking limped pasta from the trees. <laughs> and amazingly, a lot of people believed it, and the prank is widely considered the most successful April Fool's joke of all time. People actually believe that. Some people actually believe that. You know, that. My, my parents were married on April 1st. Really? Yeah. And honeymooned in Detroit. They eloped. And my paternal grandfather had warned my father against marrying my mother. He hadn't met her yet, but he'd seen a picture of her and he said that woman has bedroom eyes. <laughs> so, yes. Wow, cool. So he put a ring on it, and that was it. If you like it, you better put a ring yeah. on it, for sure. Who, who told you this story? Did your mother tell you this story? My mother. Yeah. She is, does she still have bedroom eyes? Uh, <laughs> I mean, you yes. wouldn't. You wouldn't really be the judge of yeah, that. I guess she she can still pass her driving test. I know that you spent some time with your mother and your family. Your mother is, of course, ninety 
uh, she'll be 93. And hearkening back to a couple of our episodes ago when we visited the Chicago History Museum and we were visiting with Petra, who was the curator of costumes, you told a story about your mother curating your boyhood outfits in, in tissue paper and the original boxing, and she had them all, and they were notated as to when you when she bought them or when you'd worn them, or and there were photographs that accompanied photographs of you in the outfit. The other day, you were uh, you were out uh, visiting your mother, and so you found some of these, and you took some photos, and you sent me some. They were fascinating. The one I loved the most was the one of your Cub Scout outfit and a picture of you as a Cub Scout. I found that absolutely fascinating. I never could have imagined you as a Cub Scout. Yeah, can we post that on our website? Uh, I'm going to absolutely positively post it on the website. Did you ever make it into Boy Scouts? Oh, Oh, pick the scab, Gary. (laughs) (laughs) I, I went to Boy Scouts. It was on Monday night at our church. I found everything about it absolutely terrifying. And I, we went to a camp out once in the woods in Wisconsin, and some kind of prank was played on me where I was made to go into the woods with a pillowcase to capture an animal that didn't exist. Snipe hunting. Snipe hunting. <laughs> yes. And, I, and I, snipe I didn't get it. I didn't appreciate being the butt of a joke. And I never wanted to do it again. And I didn't want to tell my parents I was quitting Boy Scouts. So on Monday nights, I went to the library. When you were supposed to be going to 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 troop meetings? I was supposed to be going to troop meetings, and instead I went to the library and hoped that one day I wouldn't be caught. And one day my mother found out that there was going to be another camp out, so she went out and bought me some cute little first aid gear for the camp out, and I accepted this gift from her, thinking, oh, Mama, I don't go to the Boy Scouts anymore. (laughs) I sit at the library and read Tennessee William plays, (laughs) trying to understand what my life will be like. (laughs) And I would have to stay at the library until it closed. And then I would slink home and I'd have to walk around the block so that if my parents saw me coming back home, I'd be coming from the, di- the, the correct direction as if I was returning home from the church and not from the library. The church where the Boy Scout where meetings, the Boy Scout were, meetings yeah. were held. So it was lies heaped upon lies. And it was, it was just like the climatic scene in The Subject with Roses when my mother made some comment to our scout leader and he said, Ross hasn't been at a troop meeting in six months, Esther. What? <laughs> Why did you lie to me? Where were you all those nights? <laughs> I was at the library, Mama. You weren't at the library. That's, a, that's not only a lie. <laughs> it's a specious lie. It's a stupid lie. Are you lie. smoking marijuana? <sighs> yes, that accusation came up. I was 12. Was this around the time when your parents determined or decided or someone decided that you should possibly have some sort of psychological testing? <laughs> Oh, my God. That was a little earlier. That was in um, third or fourth grade. Oh, you were young. And I was recommended. This was, this was, the, other, this was the other great re- revelation from Easter. The famous family story is that I almost made it into a special school for extremely bright children, what would you, gifted students. Oh. And I had been taken for an evaluation, and I... I always remember this. The teach I had a multiple choice question, and I'm, I'm, I'm really young. I'm, I'm nine or ten. And I was asked who wrote Romeo and Juliet. Was it Shakespeare or Longfellow? Yes. I said Longfellow, even though I knew the answer was Shakespeare. 
Why? I didn't want to go to a special school. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you purposely flunked the special school. Well, I think it would require a longer bus trip. Oh, the current dear. school was right across the street. What happened is my mother apparently never threw anything away from my childhood, in, in, including my umbilical cord, which I believe is in my baby book. And I, um, yeah, I'm sorry, cut that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no pun intended. We can cut we'll, that. No we'll cut intended. the umbilical cord part. So I found the original letter from the Louisville, uh, Kentucky Board of Education, inviting me to be tested. From my reading, some years later. I, it's all about psychological testing. There's nothing about me being a gifted student. It's all about me being a, a not quite right in the head student. <laughs> they wanted to be sure that you weren't you weren't crazy. Yeah, that's what I think it was about. Oh, and and so this is a, a late in life revelation that at one point my school teachers must have thought I was crazy. <laughs> so it was like it's like a revelation. I, my God, this this is like a Tennessee Williams play. And I said, no, this is more like an Ibsen play. It's a when little Ibsen. Yeah, when you find out that you've inherited syphilis from your father or something. <laughs> nothing that can be done. <laughs> you know, it's just this, a great tragedy has been heaped upon me. <laughs> I'm glad that you lived through all of that and you come out the other end, in my mind, a gifted student. Oh, well, thank you. I wouldn't say there's anything particularly wrong with you <laughs> that a couple of martinis can't fix. <laughs> a couple of other notes from 1986. The Oprah Winfrey Show started in 1986. I, I thought it was much older than that. Out of Africa, won the best picture at the 58th Annual Academy Awards. And Pixar Animation Studios open. Pixar now owned by Disney and yeah. you know, worth a quadrillion dollars. Uh, You're a big fan of Out of Africa. Uh, I am a big fan of Out of Africa. I love that movie. I had a farm in Africa. I need to give a shout out to someone in our uh, community who's in the theater industry and has been for the last, well, about 40 two seasons, Joe Drummond, Joseph Drummond, is hanging up his stopwatch after completing his 42nd season at the Goodman Theater with the closing of the most recent production of uh, 2666. His credits include, get this, 133 Goodman productions, among them The Iceman Cometh, Death of a Salesman, which was on Broadway at the Amundsen in Los Angeles, and Glengarry Glen Ross, also on Broadway, and 12 productions, 12 productions of A Christmas Carol, uh. which they've done every year now for the last 20 years. What did he do? He's he's the, state. the stage manager. He's the recipient of a Joseph Jefferson Award. Hey, maybe we should have him on the show. We love Joseph Jefferson we do. Award winners. That's usually the criteria for, for having a local Chicago For icon. lifetime achievement after 25 years of stage management at the Goodman, uh, Bob Falls, the artistic director there, says Joe has been an invaluable asset to the Goodman for many decades. His undeniable talent and unique charm uh, improved the day-to-day -day lives of our staff and left an indelible mark on the hundreds of artists who had the pleasure of sharing a project with him. As for Joe, he only had one piece of advice for other stage managers. Always carry a fork because you never know when you might encounter chocolate cake. <laughs> <laughs> well, good luck to Joe Drummond in, in his next endeavors, retiring uh, as a stage manager after 42 seasons at the Goodman Theater. We were going to 
have uh, what I considered to be a Booth One experience coming up in New York soon. Um, we were going to see Barbara Cook in her one-person show, written with her and James Lapine and directed by Tommy Toon. Well, I got a phone call the other day, Roscoe. They've canceled the entire run. They're calling it a postponement of the entire run. It's to be rescheduled, but no one really kind of knows when. And this makes me very sad because, unlike you, I've never really seen Barbara Cook live in concert. Why do you think they've, they've postponed? The stated reason is that she is also trying to finish her autobiography, and there's too much pressure. Can you imagine being an 88-year-old woman, and you're trying to finish your autobiography and prepare for a stage show, which requires you to be alone on stage with a memorized script and, and at least several songs? That's a lot of pressure. She's 88. It may be they're just not ready yet. Plus those very difficult Tommy Tune tap numbers. <laughs> those very difficult Tommy Tune tap numbers. And, and in. In, in recent years, Barbara Cook has used at least a cane and sometimes, I believe, a wheelchair. She has to sit when she performs. She's, a, she's 88 and she's also been a larger woman for, for many years. Sure. So, gosh, I hope this show does happen. Yeah. Yeah, And I, I told you, um, an acquaintance of mine saw her just this past summer in Providence and said she was terrifically entertaining and in marvelous voice. So I had hoped that this would happen without a hitch, so I was a bit stunned. I was also worried, could it be ticket sales? Because they canceled it shortly after they finally started taking out nice, full-color ads in the New York Times, and they could have put tickets on sale for $40, and you know, we've sold 500 tickets. We can't run this thing. For There's it. also been some speculation that perhaps they decided that this had best be on Broadway and not off-Broadway, and that they're waiting for an appropriate size theater like the booth to open up so that they can then do the show there, which will give them some time to work on it. And you can't deny that it would have more cachet to say Barbara Cook then and now on Broadway uh, right. uh, rather than at New World Stages. Um, right. Which <laughs> Barbara Cook in a basement of some Wobegon Theater on <laughs> West 50th Street. I, I kind of know where it is. I think I've even been there. But if you plopped me down in the middle of Manhattan, I, I couldn't yeah. find it without having yeah. the address Yeah, in my the lobby hand. is about as, is right up there with the Harris Theater. Lots of steel and concrete and many staircases oh. to negotiate. On our last podcast, we were uh, asking ourselves some questions out of our chat pack game. One of them was, where would you like to live? What kind of house in, or, or environment? And describe it in, in as much detail as possible. And you had some interesting needs should I say? Well, here's, here's one that might meet your needs. The Plaza Hotel, built in 1905 in New York, uh, has its sprawling 20th floor penthouse and the only triplex in the entire hotel for sale. <laughs> Let's buy it. Let's go. Features a 2,300-square-foot reception space, which includes a living room, formal dining room, and a home office overlooking Central Park. You would like that. A large eat-in kitchen, wine cellar, wine cellar, <laughs> informal dining area, and a media room occupying the east wing of the home. You could give tours of the east wing of your home. I could. <laughs> Which has views of Fifth Avenue, the east wing. The master suite makes up the entire 21st floor. 
and boasts two baths, a wet bar, and a terrace. And down on the 19th floor, which is accessible only by private elevator, I'm sure that appeals to you, or the staircase in the apartment that you can walk down, there are three more ensuite bedrooms, all with up to 12-foot ceilings and enviable views of the park. Four bedrooms, four and a half baths, 6,300 square feet total. How much do you think that's going for, Roscoe? A hundred million dollars. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Sold. Is that it? It's 50 million. 50 million? 50, uh, 50 we million. We could afford that. Well, we could probably get a bridge loan. What, what are the maintenance <laughs> fees and the taxes? God, Can you imagine? I can't even imagine. 6,300 square feet. The, the taxes are probably more than I make in a, a month or more than I make in an entire year, probably. Wouldn't it be fun to live at it the would Plaza be. Hotel? Could we rent it just for a night? Uh, Could it, we have our producer reach out to the Plaza Hotel and ask if we might stay there one night and do a podcast about our experiences? Yeah, like a, like a haunted house. We just want to sleep in the, in the suite yeah. one night. And we'll do our podcast from there. That would be cool. Well, if you can scrape up $50 million, or even if you can scrape up just the down payment, you can probably... Um, I'm going to add this on my a... list of things to look forward to. The other thing that you Cheetah mentioned... Rivera, new house, the recovery of Barbara Cook's health, my mother's 99th birthday in a couple of years. Oh, are, are we still on the air? Okay, I'm sorry. I, I, another thing that you also mentioned in your best place to live was somewhere that had clean air, clean water, comfort, luxuriousness. A hotel chain in Britain has created something that I think you will enjoy. If getting out of bed has never been your cup of tea, and I realize it's never been your cup of tea or your cup of coffee, Roscoe, as it's not often mine, it appears as though one company has heard your cries, making it so you never technically have to get out of bed. Do you know what a duvet is? Sure. You know, feathered, filled, blanket-type comforter-like thing. Juries in a British hotel chain has concocted the perfect solution with something called the souvet, an ensemble which they claim is half duvet and half suit. I have to show you. Our, I'm going to post this on our website, but I have to show you the photograph. Oh, that's fantastic. It looks a little bit like the Michelin tire man, but it's a suit that with a jacket and pants that is made out of a duvet material. And it's about the comfiest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. Do you sleep in this? I think you can take it off to sleep in. Oh, it's that you feel like you've never left your bed you because you're like you've, You feel like you've never left your bed. Creators worked alongside fashion designer Wendy Benstead, who took inspiration from quilted clothing in the final look. It reminds me a little bit of the teddy bear coat, too, from yes. the Chicago History Museum. A callback. Do you move around a lot when you sleep? Some nights, but not often. I apparently thrash in my sleep. You've been, well, have you been told this, or yes, are there yes, broken or, or, things? I, sometimes, actually, there have sometimes actually been other people in bed with me at certain evenings of my life. As shocking as that revelation may seem, you're, you're just speechless. <laughs> but I'm <laughs> Christmas. <laughs> it was an elf. <laughs> no, but what, I was staying at. Um, what, what's the hotel next to where the Oscars are held? In, in oh, Los Angeles. I beg your pardon. It used I, I to don't be know. the Renaissance. Now I think it's a Lowe's. They have really bouncy beds. 
And during a particularly tormented period of my life, I was staying there for a few nights. And I thrashed so much in my sleep that I threw myself out of bed. <laughs> I literally, it was as if I was sleeping on a trampoline and I actually flew out of my bed and landed on the floor in the middle of the night. Did you wake yourself up? Yes. The, the force of impact woke me up. And I thought to myself, oh, my God, if only my parents had let me go to that special needs school in Louisville, Kentucky, they would have solved all of these problems years ago. I wouldn't be thrashing myself out of bed no. at this point. Uh, I don't think the duvet suit is to be worn in bed. I think, uh, as, as you say, it's to feel like you've actually never gotten out of bed. Oh. You get out of bed, you put this duvet suit on, and no matter how chilly it is outside or, or how blue you feel, you'll just think that you're still floating in a beautiful feather-stuffed mm. duvet. I think it's kind of cool. Yeah. Have you heard uh, that Aaron Sorkin is going to be back on television in, a, in something? Something he's written is going to be back on television. NBC is going to air a live version of A Few Good Men, which was a rather popular film and a popular stage play. People love that film. Love to quote from it. Love that film. There's a million quotes from it. Um, I would would guess that it's probably in the top five quotable movies. It's a little curious because what they've done so far is The Sound of Music... The Wiz and Peter Pan, all live versions. Wiz is this going to be in lieu of doing a musical? I believe it is. Ugh. Do you not like this to, play? To what end? I mean, Jack Nicholson is so identified with playing that role in the movie. You can't <laughs> handle the truth. That's just the line yeah. from the movie. That's the, that's the line. That's the, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, the yeah, moment yeah, that yeah, everyone yeah. knows. So who's going to do that better? Why not just show the movie? Defend this decision, Gary. You want me on that wall. You need me on that wall. Maybe, more, maybe more, they'll cast more. you. Maybe, maybe this podcast me. you will elevate you to television stardom. Oh, I could, oh, I could play that part. You would be great. <laughs> it would be so scary. <laughs> we had a couple of Booth One experiences these past two weeks. One I had without you, Roscoe, and I would just touch on it briefly. We were asked uh, to come to production of Arcadia, a Tom Stoppard play at Writer's Theater. In fact, the opening play of the new Writer's Theater, and we've discussed the Writer's Theater many times. We've had Michael Halberstam on the show. This is directed by Michael Halberstam. It's a great play. It's a great play. I would think that you may not have enjoyed this play too much I don't know if you've seen it before. but Because I'm stupid? It's Is a, that what you're thinking? No, I'm not bright enough to understand it? No, it's a play about science and ideas rather than dancing girls. <laughs> well, I, I saw the play many years ago. Yeah, what did you think? I felt stupid. <laughs> <laughs> and not bright enough to understand it. Well, it's, it's a terrific play, and this was a, a dip, sparkling... But a difficult, difficult script. A difficult script. A sparkling, well-cast production. So beautifully directed to the point where I was never lost in the ideas and the science and the themes that were being discussed. And the shifting time it was, periods. And, or the shifting time periods. It was very clearly laid out, very clearly directed. It was, it was a, a fantastic looking and feeling production. We had a great time. And there were some standout performances. There's a young man named Greg Matthew Anderson. 
He's not well known yet. He works pretty much in off-loop theaters here in Chicago. I think he's a member of Remy Bumpo Theater. This guy was so good, chills would run down the back of my neck when his scenes were happening on stage. I cannot tell you how fantastic he was. Is this a matter of having great stage presence and command of the stage? Great stage presence, great command of the stage, great command of the language, a great voice, a certain stillness to him that it was just perfect for his character, a certain way of reacting to other characters without it seeming like well, without it seeming like acting. Let me just put it that way. It was really, really quite remarkable. I, I cannot wait to see him in something else. In fact, I'm going to look up and see what he's going to be doing after he finishes Arcadia, because I, I guarantee this guy's going to be a big star. Other performances that I very much enjoyed uh, were Rod Thomas, Scott Parkinson, also a very well-known actor here in Chicago. Um, I was uh, in a show with him once. Were you? Yes, how did you um, how did you manage? I was pretty good. He yeah. was good too. I was in a play with him called Bitches. Hmm. Which have we discussed this? I don't believe oh. so. Bitches was the story of the Texas cheerleader murder case. Oh, really? In which all of the characters in the show were female and they were all played by men. We weren't really in drag. It was played by men with beards and mustaches and hairy chests <laughs> and we just put on dresses and wigs and maybe pearls, hairy <laughs> legs. And just performed the play straight. And it was something of a sensation. It ran for, for more than a year Wow! in Chicago. I was in it for the last six months. And I was the mother of the uh, murderous teenager. Fantastic. And, and I wore five-inch heels and a uh, wig that was uh, about a foot tall. So I, 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 I was about seven and a half feet tall on that stage. <laughs> to get through the doorways. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, I had to duck to, to get on the doorway. <laughs> Parkinson was one of the teenage girls. But it was, it was quite fun, quite hilarious. Well, he's quite good in yeah, this play. Really quite good. The two of them are, are never on stage together because one character is in the past, uh, the 1700s part of the play, and the other character is in the modern part of the play. They pass each other on stage as they're going on and off, but they're never on stage together and interacting together. Um, unfortunately, I'd love to see them. Um, and, and one other uh, actor, actress I wanted to mention was Elizabeth Stenholt, a non-equity actress, young, mm. uh, just out of college. I think she only has a few credits. She played a young uh, character in the, in the past sections of the play. Spectacular. She was just wonderful. She and uh, Greg Matthew Anderson had a lot of interaction together. So we enjoyed it so much. It was great to see the very first show at Writers. I can't wait to see the next things. Company is their next show uh, in that main stage Talk space. Talk about how the, the, state, the theater inside and it's, the facilities. It's, it's very much a thrust stage with very, very steeply raked seating so that even if you're in the last row, you're very close to the stage. It could be a little steep for some people who have any type of vertigo, <laughs> I suppose. Really? But I went up to the top and I didn't have any problem and I don't really like to look down from heights all that much. You feel very much on top of the stage and hop of the show, and that's part of writer's whole 
reason for being. The, the seats are great. Uh, this, is a, this was a long play. This was two and a half hours. But I never felt uncomfortable. So the seating is beautiful. The would, I, would I have the found theater, the seats ample? I, I think you would have. Uh, more than ample. The seating is beautiful. The lobby areas are just tremendous. Big atrium-like lobbies with exposed wood and exposed brick and uh, beautiful wooden um, staircases, uh, lots of room to roam around. You never felt crowded out in the lobby. It just, it's just going to be a wonderful facility as they move forward with stuff. Oh, I can't wait for you to see it. You yeah. haven't yet to be up there. Yeah, An interesting choice for the first production. Very interesting choice, yeah. The, the idea of the writing of Stoppard and, and the mission of Writer's Theatre mesh just beautifully. And I think he wanted a larger ensemble cast. I think he wanted to have a large play to launch this season with, and one that challenged the subscribers. If not anything else, it's a challenging script for sure. And speaking of challenging scripts... We saw something else this week. We were granted some press tickets to go to one of our favorite theaters, Steppenwolf Theater. We've, we've talked about Steppenwolf many times before. And we went to their current production of The Flick. The Flick is a play that was produced in New York um, a couple of years ago to uh, very great acclaim. This is by Annie Baker and directed by Dexter Bullard. And it's a three-character play that takes place inside a movie theater, in the seating area of a movie theater. And so as you're sitting in the audience, you're actually facing the seats that are facing you in a movie theater. What were your thoughts on the flick, Roscoe? Well, I, I went into the play with some preconceived notions about it. I'd read a lot about the production in New York. You've set it up correctly. Most of the conversation is while the cast is cleaning the theater, sweeping the theater, mopping the theater, and getting set up for the next screening. Very mundane Very mundane. Drudgery and, I, and the routine right. of that. And I had read in the... We talked about the online chat groups last week on, on the most recent episode that the show is played in an excruciatingly slow pace. And there are lots of pauses throughout the show and scenes that are done very slowly. So I, I was anticipating that this would happen and I was, I was ready for it. The show started and it was about what I expected. I wanted the show to move more quickly. I eventually, I think, pretty much fell into the rhythm of the show and upon discussing it afterwards, I understood a little better. One of the things the playwright is trying to convey is these people's lives move very slowly and not a lot happens to them mm -hmm. and much of their life is mundane. Mm -hmm. So we as an audience experience that sense of the mundane mm -hmm. in their lives. Boy, the, the first act was long and slow. The whole, the whole play <sighs> was uh, three hours... And 15 minutes. And 15 minutes with, a, with a 15 or 17 minute intermission. So let's call it three hours of actual play time on stage, yeah. actual yeah. acting time on stage. Yeah. For, for a very long time, I'm just watching people go through their everyday lives. But by the time we got to the second act, I thought, I like these people. I'm finding them interesting, and I want to know what happens to them and how this works out. I was never for one minute bored, even in three hours. Even at times when all the characters would leave the stage, 
and nothing was happening, and we'd be staring at an empty room. And I knew the characters were on their way somewhere, either to the lobby or <laughs> to a different movie theater, or they were going up to the projection booth, and we just had to wait while that happened. But I became impatient. I wanted to hear these people speak, and I wanted to see them interacting with each other, even if they weren't speaking, interacting with each other. After the show, we, we looked at the script down in the lobby to see if the pauses were actually built in. And indeed, like Pinter, like David Mamet, there are very, very clear stage directions for the actor's dialogue, and there's lots of places where it says pause. It doesn't say pause for 20 seconds. It doesn't say pause for five seconds. It just says pause. So I can only assume that between her and the director and the actors, they determined what each of those pauses would be filled with. You know, you don't speak. We were told, we were taught this in acting, in acting class. Don't say your next line until you know what it is you're saying and why you're saying it and what's your motivation for it. So pausing is okay. <laughs> I, just, I just wanted them to kind of, well, as I always tell my friend Larry Newman Jr., Larry, act faster. <laughs> just make the connections just a little bit quicker. I loved these people. I loved all three of these characters, and I was, as you were, very invested by the second act. I was very involved in what was going to happen with them. But again, I wanted it to happen with a little bit more pace, just a, just a touch. I felt this impatience, and I'm still a little confused as to why I liked it so much, yet I was bothered by these moments of nothing happening for so long. And then maybe that's, maybe that's her talent. Well, the acting. The actors <laughs> were great and charismatic. There's a young man in the show, Travis, Tra Travis, Travis Turner. Turner, who plays Remarkable. A, an African-American, a very young 20-year-old African-American man who's grappling with some kind of mental illness. Depression. Dep yeah. Well, depression, but he's very poker-faced. And boy, how hard is it for an actor to have to be poker-faced literally for hours on stage. Yeah, and he's very matter-of-fact in a lot of his responses to the other characters. He's clearly, well, you can tell from the very beginning that he does not interact well with people. And later on in the play, he even admits he doesn't right. really like people. Right. But we got that from him right off the bat. Mm. He, was, he was astoundingly good. I think we also need to acknowledge the... The other members of the cast, Caroline Neff, who plays the projectionist. Beautiful performance, just wonderful. And Danny McCarthy, who's one of my all-time favorite actors to come out of Chicago in years and years. He is a tremendous, tremendous actor. Well, you, you, we haven't seen him on stage as much as we'd have liked in recent years because he's been doing a lot of work in movies and television. You know, I wish that was a problem I had. <laughs> well, I haven't seen you in a play in a, in a while, Ross, because I'm... Because you've been playing Superman. <laughs> because I've been playing Superman. <laughs> and he was... And I'm not sure I would have recognized him if I hadn't read this in the program, he was in the production we saw of Streetcar Named Desire some years ago Yes, at the, the Writers. Writers Theater. And Chris Jones has repeatedly written, Chris Jones, the drama critic for the Chicago Tribune, has repeatedly said that that is probably the finest production of a Tennessee Williams play he's ever seen. That was quite life. astounding, yeah. Thrilling. And, and Chris Jones wrote a stunning, quote, 
quote-unquote love letter profile about Danny McCarthy recently. Oh, yes. Yeah, and, and he deserves all, all, all the acclaim that anybody can give him. He should be way more famous than he is. Mm. Darn it. I wish I could do something about that. Maybe we can have him on the show. And make him and famous. And boost him to fame. I do want to make this point about the show, and I thought about this later after I went home. I'm going to hand it to the audience that was there last night. This was a difficult script, a difficult show, and this is not a show that comes out to the audience. I think the audience had to lean into the show, but it's a show that the audience had to work at to uh, appreciate, and I, and I felt like the audience did. The audience worked very hard. There was a very good audience. I, I felt that I worked hard. Sometimes when I have to work hard, I resent having to work hard at play. I did not resent it mm-hmm. for this one. The payoff f- with the actors and the characters was well worth it. Mm-hmm. Though, again, I think it could have been well worth it at two hours and 45 minutes. <laughs> it's, it's, just, it's just me. But, you know, lucky us living in Chicago and being able to leave work, hop in a taxi, and be a world-class play in an hour. Hey, I want to introduce a new segment this week called Recipe of the Week. Uh, Yeah, I'm going to run down a recipe of something that I think you'll really enjoy. I'm I'm bracing myself. Are you? You like coffee. I like coffee. I love coffee. Do you like a Vietnamese iced coffee? Have you ever had one? Sure. Yeah, fantastically addictive, those things. Well, here's a recipe for Cassia's Vietnamese coffee pudding. Now, doesn't that sound good? Yes. So you heat condensed milk, cream, a vanilla bean, some espresso grounds, and actual espresso coffee in a pot. You then whisk together some eggs, sugar, salt, cornstarch, and ladle them together, and whisking all the while so that the eggs don't scramble themselves. Uh, You pour the egg mixture back into the pot and cook until the mixture turns and thickens to a custard. Then you strain all of this through a fine mesh strainer into a bowl containing cubed butter and vanilla extract. And you blend it in a blender until it's really, 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 really smooth, like a beautiful pudding. And you put it in your refrigerator and cover it with saran wrap so it doesn't get a sort of a skin on top of it. And it's preferably served with a dollop of whipped cream on top and a sprinkling of ground espresso. Are you going to serve that to me now? I was thinking of doing so. Isn't that a fantastic thing? It is. Sounds wonderful. I'm going to post this on our website. Maybe people will be interested in making a Cassia's Vietnamese coffee pudding. Do you think that our listeners really cook for themselves? I'd like to believe that some of them do, and I'd like to believe that uh, some of them would like to cook more for themselves. I've been neglectful of our 1986 facts and figures. Top Gun was the highest grossing film of that year. In its first weekend, it made $8 million, which seems pathetic by today's standards, doesn't it? The average cost of a house in the United States was $89,000. Today, $184,000 is the median price for a home in the United States. And smoking on public transportation was banned in 1986, officially. Did you, do you remember smoking on airplanes? Sure. Oh. And you know who banned that? Dick Durbin, who was then congressman. Christy Brinkley and Elle McPherson were the hotties of the moment. And on a final note, Lindsay Lohan was born. Oh, my <laughs> Lord. I know. 
that was a banner year. We're approaching our time today, Roscoe. It's probably time to move on to our Kiss of Death segment. I'm ready. Are you? Shannon Bolin passed away at 99 years old. Any ideas? She replaced Mary Martin in The Sound of Music. Shannon Bolin, an actress and singer best remembered as Meg Boyd, the loyal and heartsick wife who was left behind in the original production of Damn Yankees. Yes. As well as the subsequent movie adaptation. She died in Manhattan at age 99, and Miss Bolin came east to be a singer. The, the stories are always, you know, very similar from, from, that, from that time. She came east to be a singer from her small South Dakota hometown when she was 20. Her first stop was Washington, where she worked for CBS Radio and sang in a church choir that performed for President Franklin Delano Roosevelt at the White House once. She was a mezzo-soprano. She auditioned in 1944 in New York for the New York Opera Company and won a place in the ensemble using the stage name Anne Boleyn. (laughs) I think that's fantastic. In the troupe's Broadway production of Helen Goes to Troy... Miss Bolin married pianist and composer Milton Kay in 1946, and in her private life, she was known as Shannon Bolin Kay, and she worked for a time with the composer Mark Blitzstein on Regina, his operatic treatment of the Lillian Hellman drama, The Little Foxes. I think the Lyric Opera, the Lyric Opera did that show maybe in 1986. Regina? I think so. Wow. I feel like there, there's been an opportunity or two to see Regina over the years. In 1954, she was in The Golden Apple, a through-composed musical that reset the Homeric epics in Washington State in the 20th century. Uh, you don't see that show done no. much anymore at all. It was done in colleges quite a lot back in the 60s and early 70s. In 1955, she was cast by the director George Abbott. In Damn Yankees, a signature musical of the decade based on the year the Yankees lost the pennant. Douglas Wallop's novel about an ardent baseball fan who sells his soul to the devil to help his beloved Washington senators defeat the hated Yankees. When George Abbott cast her as Meg in the stage production, she, she first rejected the role because she thought it was underwritten. Can you imagine saying no to George Abbott? Abbott told her that it was up to her to create the character, and and she did. The sophisticated nightclub singer in her mid-30s was costumed with layers of padding around her waist and dowdy dresses so that she would look the part. Uh, Transformed from Joe Boyd, a middle-aged husband, to Joe Hardy, an athletic young slugger, he leaves Meg to wonder if he's ever going to return, though he misses her enough that as Joe Hardy, this is a great plot point, he takes a room as a boarder in his old home, and she rents a room out to him as he's playing for uh, the beloved Washington Senators. In one of the show's memorable moments, the two sing a duet about their shared unhappiness called A Man Doesn't Know. When Warner Brothers bought the rights to Damn Yankees, uh, they bought it as a vehicle for, for Tab Hunter. Abbott was critical of Hunter. He didn't think that he was really uh, appropriate for the role. And the cast was cold and unfriendly to him, with the exception of Bolin and Gwen Verdon. Hmm. They both sort of liked him. Bolin and Hunter realized that they were left to their own devices to make the relationship and the emotional pull between the handsome young Joe Hardy and the middle-aged housewife convincing. And the two went off by themselves to rehearse their scenes and make the warmth between the characters palpable. 
Nearly the whole cast was in the movie version, also, as I said, directed by Abbott. But the movie heartthrob Tab Hunter replaced Stephen Douglas as Joe Hardy. Uh, and uh, through all of that, he and Miss Bolin became lifelong friends. Iona Shannon Bolin was her given name, born in Spencer, South Dakota, a town of about 500 in 1917 to Harry Bolin, a hotel owner who raised horses during the Depression. <laughs> My father named me Iona because I was born on the 1st of January, which is 1-1 or 1-O-N-E, she said. That's South Dakota humor for you right there. <laughs> <laughs> After high school, she attended Dakota Wesleyan University. And later, while she was living in Washington, the University of Maryland, Bolin studied singing with Margaret Schloss and acting at the Actors Studio with Harold Clerman, Elia Kazan, and Sanford Meisner. And she was a member of the General Society of Mayflower Descendants. Wow. Does that mean that her lineage could be traced directly back to someone who came over on the Mayflower? Of course. Is that what that that's is? exactly what that means. That's, that's amazing. In 1941, Bolin began singing on the radio in Washington, as I mentioned, and during World War II, she became the host of her own musical program, uh, interviewing soldiers and singing. And as she recalled, in 2008, it was pluck, good fortune, and the serendipitous intervention of a star that set her on her way. I just walked up to CBS and asked for a job as a singer, she said. I thought you could do that. A telephone operator who looked just like Lily Tomlin told me, we don't need any singers. But out came this redheaded guy who'd heard me, and he said, can you read poetry too? And I told him, of course, I could do anything. Well, he told me that a lady was leaving and that they needed a replacement. That man's name? Arthur Godfrey. <laughs> he gets hired by Arthur Godfrey as she walks into CBS. Well, Shannon Bowl, a 99 actress who starred in Damn Yankees, has passed away. Um, I always love to read about those lives of uh, entertainers who came out of nowhere and went to New York with, you know, a, a dollar and a dream. And uh, they sort of became something. I remember her in the movie. She was quite good. Wow. It's really a good, good role. And she was really quite excellent. How, how's Tab Hunter? Well, he's strappingly good looking. I think he plays the kind of mm, dumb side of Joe Hardy pretty well. He's not supposed to be the brightest baseball in the bag, if you know mm -hmm. what I'm talking about. I think he plays it pretty well. And he, he, his scenes with Gwen Verdon are interesting. Her one starring role in a movie. Speaking of starring roles, thank you for being my starring supporting uh, actor. Still they're co-hosts. You're lovable co-hosts and you'll find. Don't, don't laugh alike, alike or talk alike, alike, though sometimes they can squawk alike. You, you can, can lose, lose your mind when co-hosts are two of a kind. This has been Gary Zabinski for Booth One. Thank you for listening in. We will see you again on the podcast Airways. Take care, everyone. And I'm Roscoe.